You're listening to Von Perdendappi Legal News here on Waterberg Stereo. My name is Volker Kruger. With the Kini will talk to us about uh, COIDA claims, compensation for occupational injuries. So all employers, all employees, please stay tuned uh, for that discussion. But before we get to that, uh, Johannes Mogutidi will uh, discuss the expungement of criminal records. Can you have your name cleared in terms of criminal records? So uh, please send us your comments uh, at uh, info at vvd.co.za. And uh, please remember to uh, uh, listen to our podcasts uh, as well, if you maybe miss the live uh, broadcast, which uh, you can also catch up uh, on later uh, then as well. I'm talking to Wesley Keeney about COIDA claims. Maybe we can first ask you what does COIDA stand for? Uh, COIDA is the uh, Compensation for Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act. And what in principle does this entail? When can you institute a COIDA claim? It relates to an employee, is it right? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the commonly known as uh, workman's compensation claims. Uh, that was the historic name that was utilized. Um, so, essentially, if an employee meets with an accident, and an accident is defined as either an injury or occupational disease, which arose out of and in the course of employment, then they potentially have a claim for compensation. Sounds simple, but it's not always that simple. If we can maybe take a couple of examples. If you trip over a chair at your place of work and you break your arm and the medical expenses, etc., would that, for example, be a case where you probably would succeed with the claim? Yes, I mean, I would think it's, it's a risk inherent in the workplace environment, um, so you'd probably have a claim there. The extent of the compensation is another question, but you would have a claim. Mine worker who's injured in a lift that malfunctions underground, I guess... No question, that would also... Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, the facts that you propose regarding a malfunctioning lift actually suggest potential increased compensation, uh, which is something which we can talk about as well. Uh, but you would have a, a normal claim, sure. Uh, possibly a claim for increased compensation. Someone who is not healthy and has a heart attack whilst at work? Uh, that's difficult. It, it all depends. I mean, it, it's, again, conceivable that in a certain set of facts, there might be a stressor. Or an event which triggers the heart attack uh, and then so without the the, the stressor uh, the heart attack wouldn't have happened uh, but there are other instances obviously where the heart attack just happened without any stressor uh, you know they're not they're not uh, exerting themselves at work or anything like that just happened to you know uh, have the heart attack um, it's then i suppose quite difficult to say whether or not that arose you know out of employment um, it's not risk inherent it would have happened if they were at home you know conceivably so uh, fortunately that was always factual all depends on the facts of the matter and to a very very large extent um, uh, the medical evidence uh, is very very important the opinions of doctors causation now what caused uh, the, the the disease or the accident exactly yeah. so it, um, one of the definitions that use the word result in so it must be uh, 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 there must be causation uh, uh, so the, the the workplace environment uh, uh, must cause the accident I guess there are a lot of court cases about this where parties can't agree as to whether there is a valid uh, quota claim or not. Can you give me one or two examples? Uh, well, there are, there's not a huge amount of court, uh, case law uh, because by and large gets resolved internally with the compensation fund. Um, um, so most cases are sifted through through the appeal, um, the objection process um, in terms of the act. But there are cases where, where it does come up. Uh, for instance, uh, and a lot of the case laws obviously uh, before the Compensation Act came into effect, so it was the Old Workers' Comp uh, Act, but the, the, the principles are obviously apply. Um, so, for instance, there's Standard Bank versus Ralph, where an employee was 
actually had left work for the day um, and then um, got to the elevator where the accident occurred. The question then is now, uh, where does your work start and end in, yes. uh, in, in that matter? Because they were still, well, they were still essentially on the work premises almost. Mm. They entered a common area, but the court found that there was no liability in that instance. Um, there was another fairly old case as well where, um, uh, if my recollection is correct, it was around about the, 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 during the apartheid area, era because there was um, what was then defined as acts of terrorism and employees were uh, they were busy working and then something happened, I can't remember the exact, uh, it was an explosion or something to that effect uh, and the court still found that they were liable uh, because the employer brought them within the, the uh, realm of that risk uh, and even though one would normally say that the uh, an act of terrorism, as it was you know, phrased at that stage, wouldn't be regarded as uh, a risk inherent in employment. I mean, the social political circumstances at that stage, the court said it, would, it was allowed. But again, it, it always t depends on the case. Let's say someone during a lunch break walks to the shop to buy some food, etc. Um, uh, in my opinion, no. Uh, uh, that wouldn't be because you're no longer furthering the interests of the employer at that stage. So, for instance, I mean, even if you were, um, say, doing a work errand uh, for your employer uh, and you decide oh, you want to quickly run a, you know, a private errand, uh, and if the accident happens whilst running the private errand, say, going to pick up a child, whatever it may be, then you, there's, there's no longer a link between the employment and the accident and then liability. In all likelihood, again, it all depends on the facts, and in all likelihood, it wouldn't arise. Was there not a rape case a couple of years ago as well, where there was also a question whether, whether that's work related or not? Yes, um, so, um, so um, it, it more deals with the definition of a, a rose out of. So again, an accident must be in the course of and arise out of. And arise out of has, I suppose, an oversimplification to say, but it must be a risk inherent to the employment. So in this case, there was a, a nurse in the free state. It was um, um, after hours. And from what I can gather from the set of uh, the facts, uh, she was walking between two buildings and um, she was raped. Um, and uh, then when she sued the Department of Health, um, as her employer, saying that they've got an obligation to make sure that the work environment is safe, etc. They raised uh, COIDA, this, this, the, these employees' liability under COIDA, uh, sorry, exclusion of liability under COIDA as a defence, and the court said, but listen, it can't be that it's a risk inherent in, in employment that uh, an employee will be, will, be, will be raped. Why do we have this COIDA fund, do you think? What was the idea of the legislator? Um, I guess it's to protect uh, employers and employees and to give them that sort of insurance that if something happens, which is work-related, etc., then at least there will be compensation available? Um, yes, well, it's a form of social insurance, okay, and there's a very nice case in the constitutional decision uh, by Judge Iku, um, which details you know, the reasoning behind quota. But essentially what it entails is um, it's a system uh, whereby employees are essentially guaranteed the ability to recover compensation payment uh, for workplace accidents because at common law uh, uh, which would apply um, you would need to prove that the employer was negligent uh, you know for instance or you know, at fault uh, which is at times very very difficult to prove and obviously a costly exercise for many many employees um, and even if you are successful there's always the risk that the employer will not be able to pay you um, so the, 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 that's where the social insurance comes into play it's a form of no-fault liability so the employer employee need not uh, prove uh, um, any negligence on the part of the of the employer, so it can happen due to a normal, uh, you know, accident as one would, would uh, uh, you know, define it, you know, unforeseeable event. Uh, you still have a claim, uh, which is obviously quite nice for employees. Yeah, that I guess helps a lot because I mean a lot of cases um, 
uh, falter when you have to prove fault, no, negligence or sometimes even an intention. So in this case, they don't have to prove that and then the employees do have that compensation that they can claim. What can they claim? Uh, can they claim medical expenses that they have? Can they claim for pain and suffering? Can they claim for loss of income? Uh, well, that's unfortunately the trade-off that you have with a form of social insurance. The trade-off being that your, your claim in terms of the Act um, is far limited compared to what you would have in common law in terms of damages claim against the employer. Um, again, this is the, the constitutional court case that I, that I mentioned, uh, Scores uh, Supermarket versus Yoster, um, or Yoster versus Scores Supermarket, I forget uh, which, which one, uh, or which name comes first. Uh, but essentially, uh, what you're entitled to is compensation in terms of the access, not damages. It's a completely different you know, concept. Uh, um, so stuff such as um, pain and suffering that you mentioned, for instance, that's a damages idea. It doesn't form part of compensation. In terms of compensation, you're compensated um, in relation to your accident earnings. So the view of your accident earnings uh, with a statutory ceiling. Okay, so high income earners, uh, they don't aren't, uh, assess in terms of the compensation in terms of what they were actually earning. They'll be uh, in terms of the statutory ceiling. And then you there are various types of compensation that's payable. We have um, three kinds essentially, but only two really are relevant. We have to call TTDs, which is temporary total disablement. Um, so temporarily, you're totally disabled to do your work. Okay. So for instance, in your example that you utilize, you say you broke an arm, for instance. Uh, a temporary, I mean, that's a temporary uh, issue. Your bone will, will, will should uh, obviously heal and repair. Uh, but you're bigger, so you, you're totally disabled to do your work, but only on a temporary basis. Then you're entitled to TTDs, which is 75% um, of your, your accident earnings. Obviously subject to the, to the, um, uh, the ceiling. Um, and obviously uh, medical assistance as well. Um, if, however, you suffer what they call PD, permanent disability, okay, uh, then you're entitled to a different, you know, different type of compensation. So um, uh, you're entitled to PD when you reach what they call MMI, which is maximum uh, medical improvement. So essentially when you become stabilized. Uh, obviously, you know, you can't assess somebody on day one because it's not going to be a, a true reflection of where they will be in the long term. Um, so once MMI is reached, and normally it's not less than three months, the fund normally waits at least three months, uh, and it's obviously in many cases it goes much further, uh, the Act actually caters for a 24-month period. Um, so essentially after 24 months, there's a presumption that where you are at 24 months is where you, you're going to be, uh, and then you determine to be permanently disabled. Uh, so it's a different, it's a different assessment entirely. Um, uh, and there's a different, different formula as well. Uh, so up until you get uh, PD, permanent disability, you get your TTDs, which is 75% of your accident earnings. And then your PD comes in where um, if, if you are assessed to be more than 30%, so essentially 31% and above, you get a pension. And you're entitled to a, a pension. And then obviously there are uh, the medical costs, to which to are an extent paid, uh, normally only for about 24 months. Uh, but the fund can continue to, to pay uh, certain medical costs um, if it can be used to relieve the extent of the injury. So let's say you can still also prove your common law claim against the employer. Let's say the employer was negligent. Let's take that uh, lift that had a problem um, in the mine and there was an accident and it can be proven that the employer was negligent. Um, can you then still claim anything from the employer if uh, you're looking at the damages as opposed to just the compensation as you now said which might give you an extra amount? Um, no, unfortunately not. Um, your, your common law liability... Unfortunately for the employee. For, for, well, unfortunately for the employee. Uh, well, it depends on the set of the facts. Sometimes, unfortunately, yes. other times it is fortunate. Uh, like I said, uh, sometimes it looks proof. Uh, but yes, the employer's liability is excluded under Section 35. So the common liability is excluded. 
you don't have a claim against the, the employer. So that's the good news for the employer. He's sort of protected. That's um, right, yeah. There's insurance for the employee and he will be compensated according to those criteria that you mentioned now, but he can also not be sued then uh, in those uh, circumstances. Yeah, so he will just raise uh, Section 35 as a defence saying that he's comparable liability is excluded. The question then arises, I mean, does quota apply? I mean, you might have a set of facts, for instance, where um, it's not clearly apparent if quota applies. I have a case, for instance, at the moment where uh, a person was involved um, in uh, a robbery. Um, he was an employee, he was one of the employees in a truck, the truck was robbed and he was actually uh, shot. Um, and uh, he now issued a claim against the employer. Um, so we've obviously you know, utilized the, the statutory exclusion of liability. Uh, so the argument is you know, whether or not um, it is quota related. Maybe just briefly uh, touching on COVID-19 as well, if you can prove that you contracted COVID-19 at your place of work, would you then also have a quota claim in, in principle? In principle, yes. Okay, so we've spoken predominantly about injuries, now, some physical you know, injuries. You also have claims for occupational diseases. Now, um, an occupational disease um, is not, uh, there's not a closed list of occupational diseases. There is a schedule, uh, Schedule 3, which um, names a number of occupational diseases. All that really relates to is um, if, they, if you suffer from one of those diseases, uh, it's presumed that it arose out of course of employment um, uh, so then you don't you don't have to prove that whole causal element um, for um, COVID-19 it will be regarded as an award again conceivably an occupational disease you would just make sure that it was acquired or proved that it was acquired um, uh, in the workplace environment um, so it's not a schedule 3 uh, um, disease so the presumption doesn't apply uh, so there are certain uh, triggers and certain things you need to prove uh, when lodging a claim but you do have a claim for but again, potentially for, for COVID, provided you can sh uh, show that um, it was contract in the workplace. Uh, and you normally do that. Uh, to, there was regulations published um, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic uh, where you just need to show that there was somebody who um, had tested positive in the, in the workplace environment. That would ordinarily suffice. Or if you're in a high risk um, environment. So they were talking about, for instance, uh, healthcare workers um, uh, who are subject to, I think, terminologies like aer aerosol. Uh, triggers, which is when, you know, coughing or, uh, uh, and stuff like that, um, uh, that will be regarded as a high-risk environment. So if you can show, for instance, that your nurse working in a, in a hospital ward, you know, with the way people are, are coughing, uh, that's a high-risk in, uh, environment, and there'll probably be a presumption in your favor that it is, um, you know, will contract that in terms of your employment. Um, other uh, circumstances are obviously low-risk, and it's more difficult to prove. You then have to prove that there was somebody in the workplace, you know, who had it before you and, and then I suppose you've got that link and you'll be able to say that uh, I contracted in full scope of my employment. Um, then the question always arises again, what are you entitled to? I mean, ordinarily, most people recover fully from, from COVID. So for, for so long as you are off, you can get your TTDs. The regulation is limited to 30 days. I buy uh, doubts as to whether or not that is a, a valid regulation in that regard. I mean, the Act caters for, for so long as you are uh, uh, temporarily totally disabled uh, to pay a 24 months you can get uh, compensation uh, but you can get your TTDs and then if you don't recover then obviously so if there's a long-term impairment uh, the, the fund will assess that impairment in relation to the quota uh, and then obviously pay out your PE that permanent split that I mentioned and likewise obviously the lease to death um, uh, if you pass away as a consequence of uh, occupationally acquired COVID uh, then your dependents uh, would be entitled to uh, compensation in terms of the act. I mean, just finally, some practical advice. So what would you say any employee should keep in mind? The fact that if you 
got to get injured uh, at your place of work or contracted disease at your place of work and you have this claim that you can lodge and you can actually do it yourself you don't have to use an attorney uh, yes uh, well, um, the employer is obligated to report an accident okay when you use the accidents it's both physical injury and uh, you know, occupational disease so an employer is obligated to report it to the fund if they don't report to the fund it's, it's a criminal offense uh, but the reporting I've come across almost no case law or cases uh, in practically uh, where, where the employer doesn't report it. Uh, they report it and along with the reporting, the, there's a claim for compensation which is not on behalf of the, uh, the employee. It's a fairly simple process, like I said, you submit it to the fund. So employee uh, actually lodges in, in on, on, the, on the place of, or for the employee? Yeah, so they normally use uh, like a combined form which is both the reporting of the accident, uh, that's normally the physical accident, uh, the, the, the the reporting of occupation disease normally is a separate report, uh, and then the claim for compensation normally they go hand in hand. The employer tends to submit it, but the employer's obligation is only to report the accident. The employee is supposed to actually you know, claim compensation, but they use a combined form, so it normally goes hand in hand. Very, very simple, like I've said. You submit it uh, online, there's an there's a online portal. Uh, um, uh, the processing takes a while, unfortunately. How long? Any idea? <laughs> you never know with, with government. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, you never know. I mean, it all depends on. Uh, uh, sometimes the, the matter is fairly complex, which makes life very difficult for them, you know, to to assess. There might even be a dispute between the employer and employee as to whether or not the accident actually arose out of employment. Uh, um, we see that every once in a while. Uh, the employer might say, "No, it didn't happen here; it happened elsewhere." Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the the investigation must take place for fun. The fund, as we know, is um, overworked. Uh, uh, there's lots of uh, financial uh, burdens placed upon them. Um, so, um, in my experience, to try to get feedback from the fund, it can take can take years. Okay. All right, thank you, Lizzie. One of our legal experts has uh, joined us, Willem van der Merwe. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Philip. Appreciate. We're discussing the latest developments regarding firearm licenses. Uh, please tell us what has happened. So, Volker, there was a significant turnaround about May this year with firearm licenses and expired firearm licenses, uh, where SAPS actually lost a constitutional court case um, against Fidelity Security Services, where they uh, um, were in court regarding about 700 firearm licenses with firearms with firearm licenses which has expired. That belong to Fidelity. Fidelity himself, yeah. yes. And SAPS actually lost the case, and that uh, I think is a major turnaround for uh, fire of license owners. Okay. Why are you saying that? Uh, because the uh, main reason was that the, the judges uh, specifically referred to expired licenses and they said that the main reason for uh, um, uh, the, 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 the scenario that we sit in now is the fact that um, SAPS, in actual fact, interpreted the act, the, the Firearms Control Act incorrectly. There's a substantial difference between a firearm holder or a, a, a holder of a firearm and the right to possess a firearm. Basically ownership and the right to possess a firearm. Yes. The fact that your license lapsed and then your, your, your right to possess a firearm comes in jeopardy doesn't mean that your, your ownership of firearm yes. also lapses or expires. You still remain the owner of a firearm. Yeah. So SAPS actually argued that you, you're no longer the owner if the license expires, so you lose your ownership, you lose the firearm. Precisely. Uh, it's forfeited basically, uh, but the court said no, it doesn't work like and, that. And most importantly, uh, the relevance here was that SAPS can criminally, criminally prosecute you at that point in time. 
because now you're in illegal possession of a firearm which is not yours. Yeah. And that was the crux of the case. And the court said no, but you still remain the owner of the firearm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, what's, where the crux also comes in, the court made a certain remarks regarding uh, on the way forward of firearms. And the court said that uh, um, it actually was a remark where the court said to the registrar, and the registrar need to consider new applications for these uh, title holders for firearms which, which licenses has expired. So that must be considered. The, the, I mean, previously we had amnesties where you had to have in your firearm can be destroyed, and that is no longer the case. I mean, you can now simply just apply for a new firearm, and you can simply just keep the firearm safe in your possession, in your safe. Uh, obviously, it must be still, they still need to be compliant with the, with the law regarding requirements of if you're safe and so forth. But you can still simply apply for a new firearm license. You can't use the firearm because no. you don't have a license to use it. Yeah. But because you remain the owner, as the court has now said, Correctly. you can keep it. You don't have Correctly. to give it to the state, which is what Sub's previous position actually was. Yes. yes, yes. The previous amnesty said that you need to hand it in, and then it will be subject to a various various tests, and thereafter uh, um, you can then apply for it. But that is worth an amnesty period. Obviously, that period expired. Now, now you set of a predicament where you're basically in illegal possession of firearms, yes. which is automatically criminal of nature. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so that was sort of the bad news for uh, uh, subs. Uh, good news, I guess, for firearm owners. So, so what did subs now do subsequent to the to the court uh, well, decision? Uh, well, for since since the the judgment, we still had uh, a judgment. That is what we had. We, there was no directives issued. I mean, at that stage, you can go to the nearest apps and they will simply say that this industry has still firearms and has firearms license. But about a week, week and a half ago, the minister issued new directives whereby all departments basically um, of SAPS dealing with firearms, uh, I'm talking about the various uh, departments in various towns, uh, SAPS officers or designated fire officers, firearm officers, as well as the DFO, as well as the CFR are reminded to 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 attend uh, to these applications as a new application. There's however where the license has lapsed. Where the license so you can now apply as if it's a new license application. That is correct. And you will treat it the exact same as a simply new firearm. Yeah. With a distinct distinct difference that you need to present this firearm or they need to inspect this firearm. You still see if, if the firearm is still in working condition. And secondly, you need to show your lapsed firearm license, where after a verification certificate will be issued, and that will be attached to your application to your um, DFO. Okay. Yeah. Once again, good news, I suppose. So, so that's the advice that you would give to any owner of a firearm as such who's got a license that has expired. So you can apply fresh keep the firearm in safe custody in the meantime you're allowed to do that because you remain the owner that's Correct. what the court said but you've got to apply as if it is, an, if it is a new uh, firearm that you bought or whatever yes but then uh, hopefully you will be granted the license and you get them then all sorted agree uh, there's there's three uh, things that i think the public needs to, to keep in mind here first of all uh, um if you set an expired license take it uh, to go through the process apply for a new license just keep in mind that your um, uh, um, right to possess a firearm or your, um, uh, how, what do I call it, um, competency certificate might have expired. Mm -hmm. So obviously, um, if you 
competencies certificate expire, you need to first apply for a new competency before you can apply for this new yeah. file. Like with the new license application exactly. in any of it, yeah. so same principle. Exact same. And remember, as I said previously, uh, these farms will need to be uh, um, inspected as well. Remember, we talked about the IBIS testing, that's part of this test for the verification certificate. Now, I know uh, there might be some instances where farm owners who hand it in the farms and need the farm pack. Now, obviously, that, that farm will not uh, pass this IBIS testing yes, course. Yes. It's obviously a farm that's not working. So my recommendation is listen, um, put the firing, firing pin back in and make sure that the firearm is in good working condition. We don't want you to go through all the uh, efforts to apply for new license and simply fail because there's yeah, this yeah. issue. And a very third, third point that is, I think, very important is, is uh, um, the, the directors are not clear on what happens if your license does not um, succeed, if your application does not succeed. Um, is there an appeal process? There's no means about the appeal process, so what's the way forward? Because um, you're still the owner of the final. Precisely. So uh, I don't know what we're going to do regarding that, but uh, at this stage, we're still very early in the process. I think we will deal with that to when the first applications are dismissed or declined. I think then we can take from there on. But I suppose it will be the normal appeal process that will follow with a normal appeal application process. I would suspect that most firearm owners would be hopeful that they will be granted the license in any event because they were previously obviously granted the license. That has now lapsed. Precisely. So, so I guess the criteria will more or less be the same with the new one, hopefully. In the theory, and, I believe then, so. then it's sorted. Then. Yes. But yeah, obviously there might be cases where the, where the police decides, no, sorry, yes. we can't give you that, that license. In theory, it just depends on the completeness of your application. There's, there's still lots of requirements for your, your standard application. There are lots of supporting documents that you need to still complete and fill in. Uh, so in addition to the certificates that you need to comply with. And uh, secondly, just keep in mind that um, uh, the requirements back at home needs to be in place as well. If the police at any time can do an inspection of your safe requirements, and that obviously will have a huge impact on your competency as well. If your safe is not set and proper and stored in terms of the correct procedures, which the law requires. Yes, yes. All right. I think that uh, clarifies the matter. Thank yes, you. Yes, please, uh, uh, second, I just, one last point, Volker, I just want to mention as well. I think what's quite clear from the constitutional court and the attitude of the constitutional court was simply that they do not want to criminalize people who have fired the firearm licenses which have lapsed. Yeah, so that is also the other important uh, yeah. consequence of the court mm -hmm. decision. And that, so the police can yeah. now actually not prosecute, the state cannot prosecute, the police actually shouldn't arrest people that have firearms in their safe with licenses that have mm -hmm. expired because the court said you're still the owner, so you can still have it in your safe. But you can't use it. Yes, that was a route to which uh, the police wanted to follow, but it seems like the constitutional court disagrees with us, yeah. which I think is the, the biggest uh, turning point for the department. Because there are a lot of expired mm -hmm. licenses out yeah. there. Yeah, and lots. Yeah. All right, thank yeah. you. Thank you, Volker, appreciate it. Thank you for joining us, uh, Johannes Mokotedi. If you have a criminal record, you were found guilty in a court of law for some other offense, and you want to clean up your record, is that possible or is it on your name forever and ever? No, it's possible. Uh, I just want to explain the process. It's a purely administrative process wherein you approach the Department of Justice, you make an application, complete the form at their offices, and the form is submitted to the Director General who will thereafter assess it and accordingly can issue a notice that your records be expunged. 
Now, what does it mean to expunge? Expunge is an English word which primarily means to erase or permanently remove. Now, the idea behind uh, this uh, provision is that uh, uh, for a convicted person to get a second chance in life, to continue as if nothing has happened, for him not to be, to be denied for, uh, any other opportunities. Now, uh, remember, there are conditions and uh, there are certain requirements which a person must meet before he can qualify to make such an application. Yeah, surely they're fairly strict. I mean, you can't commit, um, you know, if you found guilty of murder, for example, yesterday, you can't on the next day or week after that or whatever apply for the record to be expunged. No, it's only for certain offences and after a certain period of time. Yes, correct. Uh, firstly, uh, uh, 10 years must have elapsed after you have been convicted. For, for all the for, 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 for all the offences? Yeah, for all the offences. But I'll come and explain the kind of offences we and you can approach uh, the director for such a uh, uh, expungement of the records. Uh, it should be noted that, um, uh, uh, firstly, the process to start by um, approaching the local criminal centre. Uh, for, the, for the police, wherein they will issue a notice indicating that uh, uh, your sentence has now exceeded an amount of, uh, no, a period of 10 years, as such you are eligible to make such a, an, an, an application. And um, it can only apply for certain offenses. For instance, if you have been uh, 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 sentenced to a, a, a period of imprisonment without, without a fine, you will not qualify, but where there is a fine, you will qualify. If uh, it's a corporal punishment, you will qualify. If there is a, uh, what you call this house arrest or correctional supervision, you will qualify and end. But um, uh, for a person to, to, to actually to clear out and to make sure that you do qualify, the act makes provision. There are certain schedules, schedule one and two offenses, wherein you have to check that you, you can qualify for, for making such an application and or not. All right. So it's the less serious offences, obviously, yeah. um, that apply. But the time period is always 10 years. So yeah. after 10 years, you can uh, can uh, bring such an application. Yeah, after 10 years, you can make such an application. Take note that um, uh, it is purely administrative and uh, it is with the Director General. He can, however, delegate such an authority to any other person. Practice has told me that they normally appoint an attorney who will do such uh, uh, work for them and make a recommendation and uh, the director will only make an endorsement. And it should be noted that uh, uh, it takes at least three months. Therefore, after making an application, you, can, you cannot make an inquiry after or within three months. Therefore, you must allow three months to pass for you to, to, to be able to make uh, an inquiry. And in addition to that, if the director is happy that uh, your application conforms to the requirements of the Act. They will issue a notice indicating that your records have been expunged. Uh, such a notice will be issued within a period of 14 days. And you take such a notice, you take it to the uh, correctional, no, to the department of, to the uh, uh, criminal record center, and the record, criminal record center will, within 21 days, expunge your record and uh, your record will be as if you have not committed that offence. So do they still have a discretion to grant the application or is it sort of automatic? If it's longer than 10 years and, and that category of less serious 
offences, then you automatically get it if you apply, or do they still have a discussion? No, I, I think as long as you conform to the requirements of uh, what they require, you will uh, automatically get it. However, administratively, it's a cumbersome exercise. The person has to exercise some patience. And um, it should be noted that uh, we lawyers do such applications on behalf of clients. Obviously, it is a defeat. However, members of the public can approach the Department of uh, Justice directly in Pretoria, complete such forms, it's free of charge, and uh, take it from there. And then your record is uh, clear. So if you thereafter apply for a job, for example, and they check your credit, uh, you, yeah, well, you, they sometimes check your credit record as well, but if they check your, your criminal record, yeah. then that would be clean. So yeah. they wouldn't pick up anything on your on your name at all. Yeah, the, it will be thin and you will not pick up anything. However, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, I, I prefer to be on the safer side of it that when you make an application to tell them that you were before uh, convicted, however, such a record yes, has, yes. Been, has been expunged. Sure. It's to be safer because of administratively, it can uh, uh, happen that your records have not been updated and you didn't disclose it, then it has other implications as well. And then serious offenses like Murder, rape, etc. Those cannot be expunged. Yes, no, they, they remain on your name yes. forever. Yes. However, for sexual offences and for certain types, uh, remember that uh, the court can also make a further endorsement that your record reflects on the register. Uh, before you make such an application, you have to approach the criminal record centre that your name be removed from the register, from the register, which is, however, a different process and you'll have to come up with a proof that it has been removed from the register, otherwise your application will miss us. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you. I'm joined by Johannes Mokutedi, our labor law expert. I'm not an expert, but I think the basic principle is that an employee must always act in the interest of his employer as part of his job. That is one of his tasks. So interesting question, I think. What if you are aware that your co-employee did something wrong whilst at work. What are your obligations in that regard? I think there was a recent case dealing with it. Yes, there was a case of Mukana versus AF Brands. It came, it was uh, before the uh, CCMA, wherein an employee was dismissed for such a conduct. In labor terms, we call it a derivative misconduct, and the employee was aware about the wrong done by the other employee and he did not disclose it to his employer. Now, uh, what is derivative misconduct? Derivative misconduct is a situation wherein the employee is aware about the wrongdoing, such as theft, corruption, and end, and uh, he del deliberately doesn't disclose it to his um, uh, employer. Now, uh, normally, uh, or most of the cases are in situations where there are strikes, People will be on strike and they will continue, while they're on strike, they will continue to do wrong things and uh, the other employees being on strike are being aware of such wrong things, not disclosing it to their employer. Therefore, in this instance, derivative misconduct is normally what we call, it's secondary to the primary misconduct. Primary misconduct happening, the employee being aware and doesn't disclose. Now, what does the law say? The law says, as an employee, you have to be honest with your employer. You are duty bound to disclose any wrongdoing. Failure to such can lead to a misconduct and ultimately lead to a dismissal. In the case of Nogana, uh, there was a shortage in the amount of 5,000 
in respect of the bank deposit to a security company and the other employee informed the employee in question and that employee did not disclose it to the employer and um, the employer making inquiries the employee keep quiet deliberately didn't disclose and ultimately there was a disciplinary inquiry and it was dismissed his application at the ccma was also dismissed to confirm that the employer was correct now duty to be learned is that employees are duty bound to tell their employers of any conduct of any wrongdoing in which they are aware about. So you're basically obliged to split on your co-employees. Yes. And if you fail to do so and you are dismissed, and that would be a fair ground for such a dismissal. That's basically what the outcome of this case was. Yes, correct. All right. So please take note for all employees, I guess. Yeah, thank you. That's all we have time for today. Remember our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.